this morning. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for quite some time. Um, we're going to be starting a new theme this year that I'll be focusing on just every month, once a month, just like the past two years. Um, two years ago, I did Romans 12, and that was uh, a very application-based chapter. And we looked through just the whole chapter, once a month, um, looking at different applications that could be made from the chapter. And then last year, we looked at Elijah and Elisha. And one of the goals of the contrast was, you know, Elijah and Elisha's lives more teach us how to be enriched by the Word of God, by reading and meditating on the Word of God, and how to draw out the kind of applications we see in Romans 12, even when they are not explicitly commanded or stated. So kind of how the... New Testament fulfills and gives light to things in the Old Testament that we could kind of easily see as just narrative stories. Um, And I'd like to return back this year to looking at something that's more application-based. And we're going to be looking at Ephesians 4. So once a month, we're just going to be looking at a new section of Ephesians 4. And the theme for the title of this study is in verse 1, which we'll be looking at uh, this morning and focusing on. Um, Everything we'll be looking at will be in Ephesians And so if you want to turn to Ephesians 4, we'll just be kind of planting our flag in Ephesians and um, just looking at different verses that give light to this idea of walking worthy of our calling. So this is an outline for the year. Um, You don't have to by any means memorize any of this just to kind of give you a sense of idea of where we're going. Most of these studies will be one verse uh, or two verses, but I've titled the first uh, seven lessons very deliberately going through verse 16. So the first one is how we're united by our calling, how we're urged on by it. The second is in verse 2 and 3, attitudes that preserve unity, how God has defined our unity, and we're united by what God has defined. You know, how we have unity because of Jesus' victory and the grace and the gifts he's given, how we're equipped to attain unity together, how our unity is based in truth and how we mature in truth, how we work in unity. So the first 16 verses really stress this idea of what it means for a church to have unity, how important that unity is, the nature of that unity. And I I just kind of have been thinking about how much we as a body, I think, will benefit from studying that. And then the rest of the the chapter, I was thinking about this year just looking at 1 through 16, but verses 17 through 32, I think, give some really important applications of how individually from there, what are some fundamental applications that we can be making in our lives that put on this new man that in a, in a way that is very directly related to our calling. So verse 1, I put the ESV on the board, but we're going to be looking at verse 1 and really just focusing on how do we understand this verse. I think there's some things about Ephesians 4 verse 1 that I think will set a really important foundation for the rest of the year looking at this study. Um, so I'm going to read it out of the ESV to eliminate confusion. I, I have the New American Standard in my Bible, but I like the ESV translation, so I'll read that from the board. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I don't know if you've noticed this in your study of Scripture, but the idea that we're called as Christians is actually like a, a woven a woven concept that's throughout the fabric of the New Testament. It's a very common, uh, common phrase and idea that's in the New Testament. For instance, the Corinthians in the beginning of Corinthians, they were told, consider your calling, brethren. And that's just in chapter 1 of the letter to the Corinthians. Sometimes Christians are called the called or the chosen. And 
again, I think this is a concept that is oftentimes either entirely misunderstood or really not thought about at all. And I'm going to argue for the first point. This fundamentally is extremely important that we understand our calling, like fundamentally vital to our faith. So I just want to pose the question, if you were asked, what is your calling? What would you immediately think of? What would come to your mind? How would you define that? And the first point I really just want to think about generally, like, what does the world understand a calling to be? Because I think, like, the world generally defines this correctly, even if it's misapplied. And so usually a calling, when somebody's referring to that, and there's, there's a lot of self-help material on the subject, for instance. You can find, like, an endless array of, like, books and articles and videos that have titles like Seven Methods of Finding Your Calling, 20 Ways to Discover Your Calling, and like a lot of them have different numbers and whatever, but it's all kind of the same principle. And just in kind of reading a few of those, usually the ideas in those articles or videos are very ambiguous. Like it's kind of like putting you on a journey of generic self-discovery. But really when the world is referring to a calling, if you're to look this up and try to find some kind of definition, Really, this is what you find, that a calling is, really it's what gives you a feeling that your life has a clear sense of direction, like you have purpose, right? So usually if someone is living their life and they have no sense of direction, they have no sense of any purpose, usually it's like they haven't found their calling yet. Usually it's something that maybe is someone's greatest passion. So like sometimes when somebody's like deliberately looking for their calling, They'll like try out tons of different things and what they're trying to do is they're trying to figure out, it's like, man, what am I passionate about? Like, what can I do that like I'm just happy doing? It's something that's easy for me to do. Sometimes it's like a vital responsibility. Like, oh, doing this and taking care of this like is really important and there's a lot of like maybe risk involved or there's a lot of consequence if something goes wrong. So sometimes your calling is like, oh wow, this, this responsibility has been given to me And I can tell that this is something that if I don't take care of this, like a lot's going to go wrong and there's going to be great consequence. So sometimes it's a vital responsibility. Sometimes it's what's viewed as like the key to living your life to its fullest potential. And that's a lot of times I think what the self-help articles are really getting to is how do you live your life to the fullest? Well, you've got to find your calling. And once you find your calling, then you can finally live your life to its greatest potential. Or it can be what brings you joy and contentment. You know, even if it's not something of great consequence, just something you can do that when, you, when you're involved in it, when you're active in it, it brings you enough joy where you just feel satisfied with your life. You know, you feel like you're having some great void filled to where you can have peace. Or it can be just what makes you feel like you're having an impact on the world. So sometimes what people are looking for when they're looking for their calling, they want to like, change the world. Or they, at the very least, want to feel like they're having some kind of clear impact on the culture or people around them. Or even maybe just on people they care a lot about. Sometimes, you know, like family. Somebody will feel called to take care of their family because here's where, with their children or with their spouse, they can have some clear sense of impact on their environment, right? So it could be something intimately small. Or some people, like I said at the beginning of this particular thought, like people want to change the world, right? Um, You think about oftentimes kids, you know, like little kids. You know, you ask them questions like, what do you want to do when you grow up? That's usually what they'll answer is something that seems to have some great sense of impact on the world around them, right? 
So really, that's, that's just the first point, is thinking about the importance of having a calling or looking for a calling. And really, all of these things are actually involved in God's call, every single one of them. The idea is what the world kind of ambiguously looks for is really what God is offering so much more clearly and in such a grander, unfathomably greater way. And I want you to think about, too, what does it look like when somebody's in an environment where they actually have no sense of purpose or direction, they've got no passion, no feeling of responsibility, they don't feel like there's any potential for them in their environment, no sense of joy or contentment, and they feel like they're having no impact at all on it. I'm going to use a lot of UPS analogies in this lesson, and I'll tell you, like people like that who worked at UPS, especially when I was a supervisor, they were either very lazy or they would get in everybody's way. And either they would need to get fired eventually or they were going to quit because they were so demotivated, right? So really, if, if somebody worked for the company and they were able to be trained or given the tools and equipped to have direction and to understand their purpose, when they embraced that and they saw meaning in that, those were the employees who generally were going to exceed very well. And not only were they not going to get in the way, they could actually eventually be trusted with a lot of responsibility, didn't like need to breathe down their neck in order to get them to do whatever they needed to do because they had the sense of direction and purpose and passion and they felt equipped to complete their tasks, right? So the idea is in any environment, the principles involved in a calling, even if it's not called that, are still vital to somebody having the motivation to succeed. So what is God's calling? This is really going to be the rest of the lesson. It's really just these two points that clearly, based on Ephesians verse 4, verse 1, were called. But again, if, if someone were to ask you, are you called? Or if somebody were to even more specifically like, you know, ask you, well, what is God's call? Like, what is God calling you into? Or you know, what is the nature of God's call in your life? This is another thing that generally can be very misunderstood. Usually what I found in studies with people and conversations, usually what I hear when I'm talking to people about this subject, people when they think of a call religiously or in Christianity, usually it's with preaching, right? So usually like the idea in the world is pastors or ministers in the preaching sense, they need to be called into that work. So sometimes I would talk to different preachers from different backgrounds, and if they found out that I preached, they'd be like, oh, have you been called? And usually what they mean is like that I've had some very powerful religious moments, you know, or like I heard a voice in my head or had some key experience, you know, or maybe I went to school and had like a theology degree and that like proved that like, well, now I'm, I'm like officially called. Sometimes this is also conveyed in, again, a wrong way of going to some foreign place to serve like in some kind of mission field, Right. So sometimes people say, well, I feel called to go to Africa or Europe or whatever, some place where there's some need in the culture and they can serve that need. Usually it's referred to in that way as well. Both of those things might sound good, but neither of them align really at all with what God actually says about a calling. And I'll tell you, like, the more we understand biblically in truth what the idea of a call is, the more motivated we will be to passionately serve God wherever we are. So chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, notice in verse 1 of chapter 4 again, he says, therefore, something that I've heard in lessons a lot, I think it's kind of a good memory tool for this phrase, 
when you see therefore, you need to figure out what it's there for, right? So usually therefore is saying like, okay, so because of all of these ideas that have now culminated, now do this, or now we can understand this. It's like a definitive step forward that's coming off of the steps that have already been had behind. So he says, therefore I urge you, or therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you or urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. What Paul is saying is, the idea is, we, when we understand the call as it's been outlined in chapters one through three, we will then feel motivated to then make the applications that extend out of our calling and our understanding of the calling in chapters four, five, and six. So if, if you were to maybe outline Ephesians in a neat way, Chapters 1 through 3 is the calling of the Christian. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 is walking worthy of that call. So what I'd like to do for the rest of this lesson is as simply as it can be stated, in chapters 1, through and th- one 2, and 3, I would just like to point out some key phrases that are made that are definitively speaking to our calling. Like what are things that are actually said that give us the sense of purpose and direction and responsibility? And I think when we see that, every time we return back to Ephesians 4 throughout the year, we'll have this sense of great eagerness and motivation the more we understand these things. So what has God called his saints to? Go to chapter 1, and we're going to start there. And Paul immediately in the beginning outlines, really, what the call of the Christian is. And I'll argue that this really is the summary of the call. Like everything else that we're going to see, there's going to be seven things if I'm remembering right. I mean, I'm looking right at it, but well, I have them numbered on my outline, so I I guess that helps too. But it's, uh, it's seven things, yeah. So seven things in the first three chapters that really outline our call that are summarized in this one statement. Look at chapter one, verse six, at the end of the verse. Uh, rather in the beginning of the verse. So he, he outlines these things that God has done for us to inherit salvation, redemption in Jesus. And the culmination of all that in verse six is to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved, which the beloved is, is Jesus. Look at verse 12, and this one will be um, at the end of the verse. But again, he continues to outline things that are done to get us to inherit salvation and the value of this salvation. And in verse 12, he says, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Look at verse 14. Again, he continues to really outline what God has done, the nature of our salvation, the purpose of our salvation, the glory of our salvation. And he says, who, and that is the spirit, is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view And it's kind of like verse 12. The idea of with a view is like there's an end goal here. Like God's done all of this for a reason. There's a direction. And that view is to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So everything that God has done has been to the praise of his glory. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3. This really bookends the section. And I'm sorry, I didn't mean verse 10. I meant verse 21. It's the very last verse of chapter 3. Um, Chapter 3, verse 10 is going to be another part of the call that we'll see later. Um, But verse 20 of chapter 3, this bookends this whole section about the calling. It says, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So you see the section in chapter 1 beginning with this idea that everything that God has done is to culminate 
in his people being to the praise of his glory. And at the end of the section that, again, it culminates in everything that God has done, all the power he's exerting that works within us is all to give him glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. I think maybe a way to visualize this is, again, at UPS, if I had an employee as a supervisor at UPS, those employees reflected me and the quality of my leadership. So if I had employees at UPS who were lazy at their job, if they were demotivated, if they were constantly making fundamental errors, which at UPS, everything moves so fast, it's easy to make fundamental mistakes that cause a lot of problems. But if my employees aren't growing, if they aren't developing, if they're lazy and demotivated, if they're constantly making errors that are costing the company money and time, do you think that only reflects something about the employee? Or do you think above me that those who are supervising me see it more as a reflection of me and my leadership? So when my bosses would have come into my work area to address problems, they wouldn't even talk to employees. If they saw an employee making some mistake or doing their job improperly, they immediately came to me. And then it was my job to then talk to my employee, right? Because the idea is the quality of the performance of my employee reflects something about me. Why is that important to this point? If my employees, their training and the quality of their work reflect something about me, how invested then do you think I am in my employees? How diligent do you think I am to work with them, to equip them, to train them, to help them to understand how to do their job properly, to try to catch errors quickly before someone higher up than me catches it? Generally, that's going to incite a lot of diligence in me. The reason why this relates beyond just that illustration is God is invested in this. For this to be a part of our calling is not just saying you have the responsibility to bring God praise. Everything in chapter 1 is outlining how much God has invested. Look back at chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. God has sought to overwhelmingly equip us to bring him praise and glory. If you look at verse 4, we're chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And this isn't the worldly definition of predestination where God has kind of arbitrarily chosen people. The idea is God has always had in view the quality of children that he would eventually be redeeming. And God has been working from before the foundations of the world to prepare everything that would equip them to fulfill this call. And it's taken the expanse of time, it's taken the expanse of all the work that God has done so that we now could be equipped to arise and attain to the responsibility in this call. Second thing is in chapter 1, 17 through 23. And I'm not going to read this whole prayer, but starting in verse 18, this is a prayer of Paul for the, for the Ephesians, is praying for things that he sees are vital in the context of what's being written. And in verse 18, he's praying that they could know certain things. And really there's three things. That they could know the hope of the calling, which I think is involved in the fact that it's not just based on our own works, our merit or responsibility. The hope of the calling is that God is unfailingly fully invested in this. That God is so invested to make sure that his name is honored through us, not in pride but in humility, 
that God will not fail to ensure that everything that's needed to overwhelmingly fulfill the call is given to us. And then the glory of the riches of being his inheritance in the saints. So just not the fundamental fact that God has invested everything in us because our role is ultimately to bring him glory, but it's also the fact that we are his inheritance. I don't know if all of you have like a retirement fund. Some of you are already retired and are probably withdrawing from that fund. But generally, like if you have an inheritance, that's something that you're constantly investing in and are aware of. Like there's, so Mike's, I think it's his uncle, is um, like an investment person. Like he deals with money, basically. It's, well, it's Suzanne's uncle, I guess, and Mike's like step-uncle, whatever that is. But he, he works in like an investment company. And I remember when we were communicating about that. It's like a retirement fund type thing. I remember a part of that was the process of paperwork was asking a lot of questions about how often I would be checking on this and how tempted I would be if the investment was going in a slight downward spike, if I would check on it and be critical enough with it to where I would pull my investments out. So the idea is like, how much risk am I willing to take, right? And the idea is people scrutinize their inheritance. People want to protect their assets. So if not only are we given the role of giving God glory as our ultimate call, but if we are his inheritance in the saints, his inheritance, then God is going to be as scrutinous in investing everything that he possibly can into ensuring that this investment does not fail. And then the power in the calling. So if you look at verse 19, Paul's also praying that they can know the surpassing greatness, the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. And then he gives an illustration that it's the same power that, is, that was at work, not only in raising Jesus from the dead, but seating him above every name and authority that exists in heaven. So if you know the quality of a gift and the purpose of a gift, you'll be much more prone to understand it and use it for what it is. Another thing, though, is if, if you understand your position, you'll be more prone to value it. So the most zealous and invested people at UPS, do you know who they were? The higher-ups. So generally, like, people in upper, upper, upper management would sometimes walk around facilities where their job wasn't at that facility, but it was still under the realm of, like, their... Um, like they had a region, right? So some people are in like the western region, eastern, southern. So they'll visit facilities just to check on it. And generally when somebody that high up would visit the facility, there was no playing around because they took their job seriously, way more seriously than I took it, way more seriously than my employees took it. So when they came into the building, they were going to see things that I wasn't seeing because I just didn't care enough because they were invested, right? The point of this idea of the power that's working in us and who, who believe, the glory of our inheritance, God has not given us a low position in his kingdom. Chapter 2 begins talking about how, verse 4, because of the riches of his mercy, even though we were dead in our transgression, he's made us alive together with Christ. Look at verse 6. He's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And that leads us, um, I'm sorry, I skipped one, but we'll get to showing the surpassing riches of his grace in 2 verse 7 in just a minute. The fullness of Jesus is another um, theme throughout 1, 3, and 4. Um, again, for the sake of time, I'm not going to look at each of these verses, but if you look at verse 23, 
The church is called his fullness, him who fills all in all. In chapter 319, we're to know the love of Christ, and by knowing his love, we grow into his fullness. In chapter 4, verse 13, the church, as it's working together, as we're ministering to one another, our ministry toward each other is with the resolved purpose that we grow into the fullness of Jesus, right? And this is involved in being to the praise of his glory. The more that we grow in Christ, the more that we're transformed by his power, the more that our lives are being enriched by his kindness, and the more that his commandments become evident in our behavior and our words, the more we're growing into the fullness of Jesus and motivating one another to seek more of what it is that we've been called to. So in chapter 2, verse 7, the purpose of being exalted into this highest possible position with Christ Jesus where he is, understanding that, embracing that, investing in that, is ultimately for this purpose in verse 7. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. How kind do you have to be to someone in order to change their life? So I guarantee you that when Eva talks to any of you, your first thought isn't, whoa, Bryant must be so kind to you. Like, your behavior and your words, Bryant is really treating you well. Like, it just, I'm, I'm sure it doesn't cross your mind, right? <laughs> and it's, it's, it's not that I'm being cruel to Eva, but it's just the idea of like, again, how kind do you have to be? towards someone in order for that to actually be what comes to your mind as you're interacting with them is this other person is clearly lavishing grace upon them. I think maybe a, a good analogy that I've brought up many times as we've talked about Ephesians in the past is adoption. You know, I'll tell you that when somebody comes from a really rough background, and I mean, think more specifically like a teenager being adopted, right? Or somebody beyond adolescence. You know, a lot of times movies are made about these good stories, these feel-good stories about kids who are just doomed, they're in a bad position, their behavior's in a bad position, and then finally some very loving family brings them in, and with so much patience and so much resolve, they love that child with firm resolution to help them to grow out of the condition that they were in before they received love. Those who have never received love, when they receive it, and when it's received by a clear, gracious source is when it becomes evident that something has happened to change this person's life inwardly, and then it can be reflected. Look back at verse 1 of chapter 2. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, each one of us. Why is that important to understand for this call, to bring praise to the glory of his grace? Because if I understand how destitute I was in my sinful condition, how absent I was from love, how disassociated I was from God, then my behavior can be, begin to exude transformation and people can begin to see that I'm letting go of the things that at one time had connected me to those des destitute ways that were a part of my past life, right? So transformation that's motivated by love and the gratitude that motivates that transformation, excuse me, is really what makes all of that evident. Think about how amazing that is, by the way. Like, how amazing it is that a part of our calling, God says, this is just to show that I'm surpassingly gracious to you. That there are unfathomable riches that are just kind of being <laughs> totally thrown at you. And no reserve, no trying to hold back. The call 
is to show the riches of his kindness. Look at verse 10. So connected to this idea, it's also said that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. I want to think about this for a second. Another UPS analogy. There were a lot of rules and regulations at UPS. There were, in fact, so many rules and regulations, it was impossible to know them all or keep them all. Um, and part of, like, part of a punishment, like if you were doing a very bad job running your work area as a supervisor, they would give you paperwork that you would have to turn in that would like be observations of your work area, of the rules and regulations your employees are supposed to be following. And it took so much time to make those observations, it became impossible to actually supervise properly or do your job. Because you're just, you're so stuck, like writing things down and, you know, looking at the different things on the sheet. It's just, it's overwhelming. But the reason why those rules were in place was because people had been seriously injured in the past. The reason those rules were in place was because people in the past had really invested a lot, money-wise and time-wise, trying to figure out what the best way to do the job was so that it could be done efficiently and safely. So you've got those two things where out of respect for the fact that this job has already been scrutinized so that it can be done efficiently and that maximum work ethic can be accomplished so that anybody can do the job if they just follow these simple steps out of respect for that work and out of respect for the fact that I'm in an environment where I'm not the CEO, I'm not the person in charge. Out of respect for those who have been injured and the rules that have been made because of those injuries, you follow the method. So in chapter 2, verse 10, the idea of God having prepared good works, if we understand the principle that my thoughts, my ways, have led me to death and sin, that my thoughts and my ways that are independent from God, it's not just that they're vain, they're self-destructive. I'm going to cling out of respect for God and the work he's done and the grace involved in his character, I'm going to cling to what he's prepared. Because I recognize that the things God has prepared, if I read the Old Testament, I recognize that when Israel departed from God's ways, it was not in their best interest. When I look at the sins that were accomplished by those who crucified Jesus, I recognize that's my thought and my way, independent from God, that put Jesus there. I think it was either in a prayer what Jason said during the Lord's Supper, mentioning that ultimately it's my voice that was crying at Jesus to crucify it. It's me who is scourging. I think that was John's prayer, actually, right? And I think that's the idea of the crucifixion. It's, it's the principle that's meant to be conveyed. And the blood that's been shed to deliver the ways of God to me. Jesus had to die for me to get these ways. Prophets had to suffer. People had to wander in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute and ill-treated. They had to be foreigners on the face of the earth, even being sown into. Some were prisoners, not accepting their release. Some were tortured, seeking a better citizenship. All of the blood that's soaking the pages of the, of the Bible is a testimony to the work and patience of God to deliver very specific applications of godliness that God is striving to motivate me to follow and fulfill by faith. Not things that are just, oh, well, I mean, be kind. I'm already pretty kind. Work hard. I already work pretty hard. No, there are special applications in the simplicity of what's outlined in the New Testament that will exceed whatever merit of application I can make on my own. And that's the goal, is these good works prepared will testify to the glory of his grace. Chapter 3, verse 10. 
I'm going to read um, a little bit of a section here, uh, verse 8 through 13. I think this is a very interesting section that this call has that, again, is something that I don't think I've, I've really thought about enough to really let this impact and motivate me enough. Um, chapter 3, verse 8 through 13 and as I'm reading this, just with everything we've looked at so far, be thinking like, where's the call in this, right? Like, where's the statement or the affirmation that is like giving me a sense of direction and responsibility? So chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. So just to cheat a little bit, I mean it's on the board, uh, verse 10. Paul brings to light the fact that there are these unfathomable riches that have been given in Christ. That God has had this eternal purpose that now he's carried out. And this idea of there's this administration is the idea that it's not just that God has carried out a mission, it's that now because of Jesus and all that was done in Jesus, what now God is able to do is continue to carry out this administration. And the purpose of what this is meant to do in verse 10 is to bring to light the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, verse 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. So God is looking to make known his wisdom. The quality of that wisdom, the glory of that wisdom, the nature of that wisdom. So that's one thing, that God is seeking to bring something to light, but he's, he's seeking to bring that to light very specifically. So it mentions that this is being done through the church. So don't think of just like the church coming together, right? Think about the church as just the people. God's people scattered everywhere in all places in the earth, even if we're separated physically from each other at work or whatever, you know, we're still actively the church as we are where we are. So just imagine that. Through you, did you know that God, it's as if in heaven, for each of us individually, it's like God is shining a spotlight on you and your mission as God is bringing attention to you, look at my wisdom. Look at what I've done in Jason, Brandon, Paul, Jim, Anthony, Betty. That each of us in our own individually beautiful and unique ways as God has created us are designed to prove his wisdom. But notice in this verse, here's what I think is unusual and worth stopping for a minute to focus on. Who is God's wisdom being given to here through the church? Is it to the culture around us? Is it your colleagues at work? Is it your family, your children, your wife, your, your husband? You imagine God being surrounded by heavenly entities, entities who by appearance from what we see in the Bible were so glorious and frightening to look at that those who saw them like fell like dead men at their presence. Entities that can kill legions, hundreds of thousands of people in a moment. 
And God in heaven is pointing to us and saying, look, look what I've done. Look at my wisdom. And what a shame when God has done these great things and when God in heaven is seeking to prove his wisdom to these beings around him. I don't know what that looks like or means, these heavenly authorities, but at the very least, what a responsibility. Are you doing that? Can God point to you and say, look at my wisdom. Look at it being lived out. Look at my kindness as it's changing this person and filling their life, not with worldliness and selfish indulgence, but with grace and reverence and godliness. Chapter 3, 14 through 19, and this will be the last part of the call. This is a famous prayer. So here Paul is praying that the Ephesians could be strengthened with God's power through his spirit in the inner man in verse 16, so that Christ may draw in our hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, now verse 18, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So we're called to know the love of Christ. You know, one vital thing here, none of these components of God's call puts a Christian as an island to themselves. Look back at verse 18. Do you see the working, the unity involved in this part of the call? Is he saying that you on your own, through just your own personal study and you just kind of serving God in whatever way that you find of yourself, discover God's love? No, he says, this is to be done with all the saints. And you ever heard of this show called Hoarders? It's where people, like, they hoard things and, like, they're mentally ill and, like, you know, they have psychologists come and try to help them out of their disorder. The idea is, like, they see value for some reason in, like, this junk that they've been collecting. And what God is trying to do with his saints is to see value where the world will not see it. To see glory where no one else is going to see it. And when I see that glory, I'm going to try to hoard everything that I possibly can associated with that glory. That may be people who by all worldly appearance seem worthless. It's going to be in interactions that are going to be quiet and overlooked. In that will be the glory of God's call. I'm going to conclude the lesson going back in a sense to the first point. We crave a calling. You know, that's why there's so much material in the world about this. We crave fellowship We crave living a life of impact. We crave living a life of passion. We want responsibility, even when we're lazy. And those cravings that God has put in us are designed to be fulfilled in the church and in Christ. We crave individuality. We want to be a part of something. We want to be appreciated. We want to be valued. We want to be somewhere where we feel like we're reaching our maximum value. That is overwhelmingly found in the church and in Christ Jesus. Does that matter to you? Will you take God's call seriously? Will you allow that to change you and motivate you? Will it give you direction and purpose? I know of a man who's an elder of a church who's a janitor for a living. He has not found in the world 
what people would say is like, oh, you found your great calling, you know, your great purpose is, is fulfilled. Living in the most meager circumstances, a dear brother who has found everything in the call of God. Folks, if we can get this, if we can get this, we can lose everything and still have joint contentment. If you're here this morning and you recognize that you want to respond to the call to receive the glory of these things without reserve, now is a time prepared while we stand and sing our invitation song.